Hello and welcome back to Commodity Conversations by the team at Mercado, the podcast where we aim to keep you up to date with the key trends, drivers and moves in livestock, grain, oilseed and fibre markets. My name is Olivia Agar. Thanks for joining us for episode number 166 and Happy New Year. I hope you all got a bit of rest and a break over the holidays, but we're glad to be back into it now for the first podcast of 2022, which wasn't brewed up on our own admittedly but originally featured on our good friends over at Marcus Oldham Agricultural College's podcast, Ag Talk, at the end of last year. So you'll recognise David Cornish. He is a regular guest on Commodity Conversations and host of the Ag Talk podcast, chatting with Mercado's Robert Herman. To recap 2021 and have a look at what might be in store for us in commodity markets in 2022. We knew our listeners would get a lot out of this episode as well, so thanks, David, for letting us share the episode. And if you're lucky enough to still be on holidays or have some spare time, take a look at the rest of the episodes on Ag Talk because there are plenty on there that we're sure you'll like. Before we get into it, though, a bit of a recap on some of the grain and oilseed market movements, which have a lot of weather to consider. So South America's in the spotlight at the moment as key soybean producing states have suffered irreversible yield losses due to hot and dry conditions. So many forecasters have been slashing production estimates for South America. Black Sea crop prospects are progressing nicely though after some recent rain and snow and winter crop conditions have declined in the US over the last few weeks. So given the tight global stocks, we're likely to see more concerns around production and this should give us support to commodity prices as we head through 2022. We'll be back to a more normal reporting schedule on Mercado next week, so keep an eye on your inbox for our updates. But I'll hand over to David Cornish now and let the episode get underway. For the last podcast of the season, Robert Herman, Managing Director of Mercado, has kindly agreed to come back and chew the fat on the year that has been and what should be on our radar regarding costs and prices and other things going forward for the agricultural industry. Welcome back, Robert. Oh, thanks. Thanks, David. Very nice to be back. So, interesting year. I, I, again, when I, when I proposed this question, I started thinking about it myself. What are the... What are the the takeaways is the could have beens and say that we should, which should we maybe think about from agriculture to start off with? It's an interesting point to come from. And in, and in thinking about this before, David, I obviously we look at markets, but markets are driven by other things. So they're driven by, we know in, in Australia, they're driven by seasons, they're driven by supply, they're driven by demand, you know, those basic fundamentals. But um, it's fair to say that, you know, the real, uh, it's almost, whispered these days but the the success of agriculture at the moment is almost unprecedented and i think you know i think you know farmers you know deal with it on a day-to-day basis and i guess sometimes it sneaks up until you start to sell something you think oh this is a pretty good time but we're now seeing that um whatever you're selling whether it's livestock or grains or oil seeds um, you're doing very, very well. And they're the main commodities that we deal with. And, yep. uh, and if you want to throw in cotton, it's going great. So the, the big question for Australia was always a season. And I know there'll be people who say, oh, our season is not quite so good. But in general, we are seeing uh, things in a very good shape at the moment. So I suppose my, you know, when we look at this and we say, oh, is it a surprise that this is happening? 
Uh, not the season, of course, because we, ne- yeah. we never try. We never think we know what's happening there. But is it a surprise that suddenly our commodities are in demand? And and I don't think it is. I think I think this is a we've evolved to this position. It's not something that's come out of the blue. We've evolved to this position. Be- and and you know the bottom line to it, Dave. And we probably talked about this before. Is that we have an increasing population with increasing wealth increasingly wanting to consume the types of commodities that we produce because there's a lot of i suppose when we look back there was a lot of angst in the in the markets oh, let's be let's put be blunt around china and obviously mm. china is a big part of that but you know we, we've got the ecchi at decile 11s you know it, it's just you know and 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 Having been involved in cattle for for thirty or forty years, I've been waiting for the next downturn, but I'm not seeing anything that would suggest a from a trade perspective, which I thought would have paid now. But obviously, we've got the issue now with good seasonal conditions up north driving some of that. But also, yeah, just the general demand and supply issues that would suggest that we're we're, we're heading to a, a brick wall, and maybe that's when we are heading to a brick wall and when we think we're not? I think it's a very good observation that we are seeing, you know, this very strong cattle market go for a lot longer than would have been first thought of. And, and it's worth just go, looking back. And you mentioned that the the Ekis at, uh, you know, some very high decile. I, I think um, we now see, well, let, let, let's just, Let's just go back and, and do a little bit of a revision on this. When, when we came out of the drought, you know, the Eki was trading around 500 cents. Um, last year, this time last year, it was trading at 790. It's 40% higher this year. Sure. So we were, that, that's un, unusual because normally the drought recovery gives us a lift in the markets. This time it has been far more extended and, and the reason it's been extended is twofold. Firstly, the seasonal conditions have just kept on keeping on. Uh, and, you know, there's places where, what, where we would normally see the season um, fail or, or, you know, be a bit unpredictable, have just continually had rain and, and ground feed. And so that's created demand. But, the, the, and I mentioned it's twofold. The other thing is that if we look at meat prices and we use the 90CL as sort of a benchmark, it's actually 35% up on this time last year. So we have the two, we have the twin demand drivers, if you like, people wanting to restock and rebuild their herds, which makes a hell of a lot of sense, especially when you've got seasonal conditions like they are and demand outlook like it is, and we've got this appetite for our red meat. So it, I think we, I mean, this time last year, we were looking at the market and saying, well, if Queensland doesn't get rain, people will start to sell again at these prices and that will um, increase supply and, um, and that will put pressure on price. In fact, the opposite has happened. So, you know, I, at the risk of being a, a failed analyst, we didn't see it, but I don't think anybody did, David, because yeah. th- this is, you know, this is, uh, this is far more than we could have expected. So interesting. Let's, Thought talk about that ninety CL price. So that's basically saying to me that the prices in the US, we we we're still getting an increase in our price in the US. I thought our beef was quite expensive at the moment. 
compared it is. to world, world parity. Yeah, it is. It is expensive. So what else is happening? Well, there's, there's two things that are happening. There is a shortage of beef or red meat protein in the world to meet demand. Um, that's, just a, that's just a function, again, of this increased appetite based on uh, larger demographics being able to afford it. And, and the second thing is that we don't compete in the average beef markets. We don't compete in the average lamb market. We compete in the premium markets. And that's to the credit of our industry bodies, you know, MLA and others, AMPC, who have, you know, focused their attention on not only getting access to markets, but accessing markets that are high value and, and can afford to pay you know, the sort of premiums that we're getting. So, um, yeah, so the 90CL, I mean, this time last year it was 647. This week it's 874. So, it, you know, and, and again, overlaid, we haven't mentioned it yet, we haven't mentioned the COVID word, but yeah. this is overlaid across a period of uncertainty. And yeah. so, you know, that that uncertainty is still ahead of us because of COVID, but, you know, the uncertainty could mean that there is increased uh, global ability to buy products. And if that's the case, we know it translates into um, red meat protein. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing through the COVID. We, we, we've been waiting for this downturn in economies and we've been waiting for this reduction in demand. But it's come to a point, but I wouldn't say it's been as severe as I think what some economists would have suggested we, we were going to see the doom and gloom that that, that, that was proposed to happen. No, and that's right. If you want to go back through all the economic forecasts, they're a bit like our forecast of the EYCI, you know. It was difficult to see the economies doing as well as they are. And we, we you know, because it's hard to figure out what does government stimulus of the at the levels that we saw through this pandemic, what does it actually do? Well, we now know that it actually gives people money to spend and, and they and that translates to at a country like Australia that's producing um, these types of commodities. So in the cattle industry looking forward, what are the sort of the flags that we as uh, producers should be looking out for that might change, uh, might signal a change of, of, of fortunes? Well, what, one of the things we know is as a result of these season conditions and the positive outlook, our herd is rebuilding. It's rebuilding, you know, at a rapid rate. And that, to, to be honest, that's very sensible. If you're in an in a industry that's got good prospects and you've got the wherewithal to do it, that, that is a good season, why wouldn't you rebuild? And slaughtering females um, in the drought is the opposite of that. And it's, uh, so we're seeing that reversed. So watch out for when, as this herd rebuilds, watch out for tough seasonal conditions in the north. You know, 50% of our beef herd is in the north, Queensland, Northern Territory, the Kimberley. So watch out for those conditions because when they get a tight season, at these sort of prices, David, people aren't going to hang on to stock. Yep. They're going to dump them. And and we've had, re- we've had very recent experience of some pretty severe droughts. So farmers in our, and again, anecdotally, in our experience are saying, well, we're not going to hang on to stock next time we get a tight season, we're going to sell them and, and it's a better way to survive the tough season. So watch out for the season turning in the north. Now, right now, we're seeing, as we know, with the, with the rainfall patterns, you know, if they're talking floods in New South Wales, you can be pretty sure they're talking good rains 
through that cattle country, which is not going to encourage any destocking. In fact, it will encourage continued restocking, which again, you talked about running into a cliff um, or a brick wall, I think you said. I don't know that we'll hit a brick wall because demand for meat is, is strong globally. But what we might see is that the, um, the supply starts to overwhelm the capacity here. And if you look back to, you know, to 2018, 2019, we had very strong meat demand globally, but the supply of cattle here just overwhelmed it. And so, you know, the price of meat was strong, but the price of cattle was, was very low. Or, well, I shouldn't say very low. It was low relative to the price of meat. Mm. But that's what the, um, I suppose, what the interesting thing from that perspective is that the, the floor that we might be looking at, or if I was doing forward budgets and saying what's the, the worst I could worst case scenario, it's certainly a lot higher than probably what I would have been talking about ten years ago. Absolutely. So, and and if we go back to that ninety CL indicator of, of meat demand, it's only very rarely at a very brief period of time in late twenty nineteen was it actually higher than where it is now. So. And again, if you're saying, what do we look out for? We look out for the season changing on the back of a, a, a bigger herd, but we also look out for any change in demand of meat. Now, we can't see that at the moment because this because the, the demand is, is growing and going up. But watch out if it does turn and if it coincides with a poor season, you know, we may see cattle prices retreat quite quickly. But your point about a floor price is, is well made. You know, we, we used to see, you know, we used to try and get to 400 cents for an indi- for Eastern Young Cattle Indicator. I mean, if it came back to 800, we would be surprised in this climate in the, in the, in the short to medium term. Lamb, let's move on to another protein. Are we seeing similar things? I mean, obviously we don't have the restock of demand, but we're obviously not seeing increase in, in, in the flock. Are we or are we? And is demand still healthy for lamb well i think in the short term one this year has been a a difficult one for lamb producers um not from the point of selling but from the point of production you know the wet we know that uh, anecdotally again you know livestock like sun on their backs david so we haven't had as much sun on their backs so the lambs haven't done as well um we spoke to jason trump about some of the technical reasons for that a couple of weeks ago but what it's meant is that the supply of lamb has been more orderly uh, in a, at a time when lamb processors have had their challenges. You know, we know that we yep. had COVID closed down some meat works. It hasn't impacted on the market. And in fact, the talking about indicators again, the Eastern States Trade Lamb Indicator is actually 12% higher than this time last year. So, but, but our supply is running at about 2% behind where it would have normally been. So we, sorry, just to correct that, we, we would normally have, have sold and slaughtered 33% of the expected lambs by now. We've only slaughtered, you know, 29, 30% yep. of those expected lambs. So the supply is running a bit behind at a time when we think, and again, nobody really knows until they come through, but we think that lamb production or lambs on the ground is slightly ahead of last year. So that means that it's pushed the supply back and it's pushed it back at a time when, um, processes have had a few troubles, but it's also meant that they can look forward into next year and extend their slaughter, uh, you know, a bit further out. So a lot more lambs probably being turned out. Uh, and again, we've got summer crops that that are only just starting to take off and they've got plenty of moisture. We've got pastures 
and we'll have stubbles, I suppose, you know, if, if farmers want to put their lands, put lands back on stubble. So spreading that supply for lamb is important because unlike with cattle, lamb supply is very seasonal. You know, everybody wants to sell yeah. their lambs at the one time. So anything that pushes that back allows the processes to develop the markets. Um, um, it, it allows them more easily access to markets spread over a period of time. And the other changing thing that's happened over time is the impact of China, and and China is um, while while we you know while they you know there are geopolitical ructions all around the place, their appetite for sheep and lamb is strong, and and interestingly their appetite for frozen uh, sheep meat products is very strong. You know they they consider a frozen product to be a premium product because you know, the history of food security in those yep. countries. So that's a bonus for a processor because he, because he can slaughter and, and store product and then deliver it later. And, and it's, it's a strong market. And there's no evidence to say that that market will be impacted because, again, you know, we, we look back, there's only Australia and New Zealand, the only two significant exporters of lamb and sheep meat in the world. You know, we're, we're all at constrained numbers uh, the numbers aren't growing like they in the percentage terms like they would with cattle because we're in a, we're a more condensed area, and and the area that sheep compete in, David, has to compete with grains, and um, I don't think there's any evidence that the grain farmers reducing their planted acres. And that, that that's what's underlying the the, the, the strong mutton prices in the China market. Is that right? Yes, it is. We've seen mutton um, perhaps a little bit softer than lamb, although it is okay. slightly, it's 3% ahead of this time last year, but not as strong as lamb. But we think that's a combination of uh, lower numbers and also, you know, wanting to put lamb through the processing works, you know, to, to take advantage of the demand for lamb. So um, I, I think we'll see, we'll see mutton very strong well into the future. I know early on in the year we were, we're, we've seen U.S grow as a market for lamb is that is that still the case yes the u.s the u.s is a strong market for lamb because it's 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 actually in a funny way even though it's not a big product on u.s shelves it's an established market we've been exporting there for a long long time and and so there are you know there are customers there who are well aware of our lamb and um and it's got good positioning uh COVID actually got that into the kitchens as well so people were going in and buying and cooking at home and saying oh there's a bit of lamb beside the the beef or the pork or the chicken uh, i'll give it a try so we sort of opened up a new market and uh, and that will support it we've always had the restaurant trade and the um you know the the shipping trade what, what can i say there the um the tourist trade yep. who were who you know they were getting lamb dishes served up to them on their trips but now the um, household is, is also getting used to it. So again, if you look at the supply of lamb into the world market as part of a red meat protein, it is minuscule. Yeah. So you don't actually need many more customers in the in the world of red meat protein to to have an influence on um, on the on the demand and price of lamb. So we think that's a really strong story going forward. We think that given that supply is going to remain constrained, because only Australian New, New Zealand flock has actually had a a bigger hit in percentage terms than the Australian flock. So it, and it's not turning around either. If anything, they're turning more to beef cattle and, and, de- and keeping their dairy interests, obviously. Yeah. So moving to the byproduct wool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a cheap shot. <laughs> Shall we start? We'll start down the, the, the fine end, mate. And uh, what, what, 
how how the year go for that? Well, the final had a great year, and and it had a again. We're so tied up with seasons here, and in a funny way, the breaking of the drought here actually meant there was less pressure on fine wool supply. There was less fine wool supply coming through. So it it dramatically increased in price. But if you look at the Eastern Market Indicator, again, we need to keep this in perspective. We've seen the last six months where, since the season opened, remember the wool season opens in August, where the Eastern Market Indicator has battled, the general market has battled. Fine wool hasn't, fine wool's done well. Um, although that final premium is starting to wane a little bit, it's um, as, as supply, you know, the season levels out, if you like, you know, the general supply levels of different micron categories are becoming more stable. Um, but the Eastern market indicator is 17% up on this time last year. So, yep. you know, while it's a byproduct, David, and I take your <laughs> point and uh, not highly, uh, not as highly regarded as what it perhaps was back in its heyday, it's still quite significant and the demand is quite significant. There are a couple of factors and, and I know you're going to ask about crossbred wool. We're talking about byproducts, David, there's your, there's your byproduct. Absolutely. You know, the, the, that's a real battle, a real struggle, and it's hard to see where the recovery is going to come from. The only thing I would say to crossbred producers is we know that the cure for, for poor prices is poor prices quite often, and, and there will be people looking at these that the amount of crossbred wool that's available at low prices and saying, can we actually build a, a business and, and develop products? And that will happen. The other factor that's come to light, which has been, it's been a, a long haul for the wool industry, and that is quality assurance programs. Yep. And, and there's real premiums being paid for those wools that meet that quality assurance. Now, now one of the categories that fits under quality assurance, and, and we can't ignore this, is the fact that you aren't able to mule. So what it means for merino wool is that a very small percentage of merino wool, I think last month about 3% of the merino wool offered fitted under uh, responsible wool sourcing guidelines. There's a very small percentage that meets that, but the premiums are there. Mm. And so it's going to mean that there'll be an incentive. I think the premiums are significant enough for more wool growers to consider whether they can meet that uh, and and look at that the program of, of developing their their farm models without mulesing, but um, it, 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 that's been a really interesting development and it's got some sustainability because uh, South Africa has a hell of a lot more wool uh, that's not mules. In fact, yep. most of their flocks not mules, so and their premiums are even stronger here where there's a bit of volume. Mm. than what we're seeing here in Australia. Just on, 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 on the demand, there was issues around China factories, wasn't there, with mm. regards to power mm. or something? And Did that have an effect and is that ongoing? Yes, it's ongoing. Any of those things are ongoing. And it's interesting that um, – it's always interesting to me that you see something happens in a, in a factory in China or, or somewhere in the world – and it immediately reflects on the auction price here. So, I mean, that wool's got months before it gets there. But it is a very reactive market where any impact on confidence um, in the into the future uh, has an immediate impact on price. The the good thing about at the moment is that our I'm almost 100% certain, David, that our supply is is underwhelming for the world market. Yeah, and so that means that. If there is a hiccup in the market, 
based on, let's say, you know, a message comes down from China and says, oh, the power's been turned off. The, the farmers are able to, the wool producers are able to hold back a bit of volume. The volume takes the pressure off the market, given at a time when there's low supply and, and the market can recorrect. recorrect. And, uh, and that's not something we've always seen. I, I grew up in a time when there was, you know, a lot of wool. In fact, we had a 2 million bales sitting in the stockpile when I was starting off in the industry. Um, so the impact of holding back supply was pointless. There was plenty of supply. Now there's not plenty of supply. And I think we, we spoke about this earlier, David, the, the potential for the world economies to rebound, given the stimulus and, and you know, the, the times we're in, bodes well for wool as well. It, we know that it's very much a commodity that relies on confidence and it relies on GDP capacity in those northern hemisphere countries. And if they those things come through, then I think we'll see some good times. So I'm not... I'm not a negative on any commodities in Australia at the moment, yep. David. Although, as you say, let's watch out for the next brick wall or the next cliff. So now let's move to um, grains. Now, worldwide, uh, the global in- global factors have actually been quite positive for Australian grain, and we were looking at going into a season when when the, I know the streets of Maureen were going to be paved with gold. It usually happens when you have a good grain grain harvest and, and, and the qualities there. Unfortunately, I think the, the price premium's there, but the, the, the quality of the grain's obviously going to be affected by the, the, the rain, isn't it? I think for those that have been, you know, had these floods and these big rain events, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a kick in the guts when you get so close. The underlying factor, though, is that if you look at ASW wheat, this time last year it was un, just under $300 a tonne. Yep. This year, it's just under 400. So, you know, you've got really strong underlying grain demand. And that's nothing to do with Australia. That's all to do with failed crops in the Northern Hemisphere. And again, it reinforces the fact that we're a little player. We're a big exporter, Mm. but we're a little player in the overall scheme of things. And so what it's meaning that the premiums for Australian wheat are very low. You know, they, people talk about the basis. Yep. The basis of Australian wheat is as low as it's ever been. But it's almost a non-event because the underlying price and the shortage of grain in the in the Northern Hemisphere is um, is critical. And, you know, even things, there was an example the other day that came through, I think um, one of our analysts looked at it, was that, you know, the US produces about 2 million tonnes of premium barley, so malting barley, and that's been severely impacted. And that malting barley was totally consumed by US beer producers. Mm. So those sort of markets have got to be filled by somewhere else. So that's why you're seeing the premium markets are very strong. So H2 wheat, uh, malt barley, they're very strong. The premium is very strong for anyone who's not impacted by the weather and has those type of qualities. But the underlying, now it's the old story, David, in the end, it's not about the premium for your product. It's about how much product you produce on the farm. So, are we seeing a greater margin between sort of feed wheat and prime hard? Is, is that is that increased in its in its variance? Yes, yes it's increased. To, I just don't have it in front of me, Dave, yeah. but it's increased to almost record levels. Yeah, and that's great. And I think if you look at the the Mallee in Victoria, the Wimmera, even down in the Western Districts, they're going to produce some pretty good quality grains. You know, they haven't been impacted. So a lot of the um, grain producers. And, and into South Australia, yep. a lot of the grain producers are going to um, have not only big yields, but 
you know, high quality grains. What's happening over in WA? Well, WA's um, right in the peak of their harvest. They're producing a second year of, of very good production. Yep. Um, quality's, quality's fine. Um, I think the fact that we you don't hear much <laughs> says that they're flat out, you know, getting <laughs> this into the bin and getting it sold. Great. And, of course, one other factor that's in the favour, I think, I think in WA there was an extra 400,000 hectares planted compared to last year, and that there was an extra 400,000 hectares of canola planted. Mm. Now, if, you know, those, the yields are okay, you know, above average, and the oil content's above average, and the price, uh, I'm just looking here, the price is about 50% up on this time last year. So this time last year, the price of canola into Melbourne was about $600 a tonne. It's in the mid-800s now. So is, that, is, that, is it the fact that Canada didn't have a crop that's driving that? 100%. Mm. And, and it's also a factor that demand for oil yep. in general is being impacted because soybean has been, the supply has been tight. In some areas have had good supply, but supply has been tight. But you've also had China, you know, just hoovering up massive amounts uh, above their normal imports because they're trying to replenish their stocks on the back of some failed harvests and, and increasing demand. So when do we get a, an indication on what's happening in the rest of the world with regards to their winter crops? Well, not until we get to March, April. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know that's always been a good time for Australian farmers to look at their hedging program because any nervousness in March, April, as, as the winter crops come out of their dormancy, come out of um, their freeze and, and they're looking for some rain, any nervousness in that area um, tends to spike the market. At this stage, and what it's saying really is the price of our grain won't be moving, going anywhere in a hurry until we get to that point. So, so the farmers who are harvesting now have a real opportunity to get the, get the grain in the bin, find out what qualities it is, find the markets for it and turn it into cash at a time when there's going to be a period, David, between now and end of February where nothing much else will move the market from where it is now. I'm assuming given the fantastic opportunity you have in double cropping country that there's going to be sorghum going in left, right and centre giving the, the, the moisture up there. What, what, what effect would that have? Any? In Australia, it won't have any effect, really, because we're, we're, again, we're just a bit player. It'll be the, it'll be the corn price in the, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, the soybean price that, that drives any change in price. But the point you make is, worth, is, is very good because it also reminds us that any, when these sort of prices are around, Everywhere in the world will be trying to capitalise on them. And the way you capitalise them is, is you plant a crop. Mm. So we're going to have a lot of crops planted. That said, <laughs> we haven't mentioned the fertiliser word yet, David. But I was, I was leaving that to last, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't ignore it because it yep. will impact on pl- farmers' decisions, whether that be the area they plant or the amount of fertiliser they apply to crops that they plant. And both of those decisions have the potential to constrict supply which as we know um, supports price so while we'll have if 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 we if fertilizer prices were just floating around their normal range in these conditions we would be guaranteeing a record planting and um, with these prices we'd be guaranteeing a record level of farm inputs to to maximize yield so we'd know that we'd have a record crop coming 
That's been thrown into doubt, though, because of the cost of um, fertiliser and, and therefore the cost of growing a tonne of grain or seed or, or bean. So let's talk about that because, again, it's, it's the F word, or that and fuel, I suppose. Mm. What's, can you explain to me what's driving it? Why, why are the prices where they are? And, and is there any likelihood that that's going to change over the next 12 months? The answer to your second question first is that it's unlikely to change in the next 12 months. And, and the reason for that is that this is a, a, a supply issue. So we haven't really yet hit demand, peak demand. Peak demand for fertiliser is in the first quarter, first quarter and into the second quarter of, of next year. But we know that supply is, is, a, is a problem. And the, supplies, the, the pro- supply problem has been built around two factors. One is, again, we mentioned, you've got to keep mentioning China, but their appetite for fertiliser is, is, is enormous. And it's being driven by the government saying, you know, you guys have got to start to produce more um, more feed for us, and um, and the way you do that is you put more fertilizer out. So, so their their demand has been very strong, but overlaid with that, David has been logistics problems getting yep. the, getting the fertilizer around. Now that logistic problem can fix itself, but with with, with a, a logistics challenge and one and the biggest uh, user um, ramping up their demand, it means we have a backlog of of supply. And, and that backlog of supply is going to be very difficult to fill, especially when we're coming into the, what we know is the peak period, uh, certainly in the, uh, you know, South America, uh, Australia and the US and Canada, you know, big cropping nations, their peak period of fertiliser um, demand and use is in the first two quarters. So that's going to maintain, you just can't get any, they just can't get any more out of the ground. You can imagine that the, the countries that have the fertiliser are digging as fast as hard as they can, <laughs> yep. but um, you just, for a start, you couldn't get it, couldn't move it, and now they will struggle to fill, uh, fill the demand, and so there's not going to be any relief uh, in the in the next twelve months, in, yeah. in our view. Because it's interesting that logistics. I mean, just extrapolate that out a bit further. You try and get a Toyota now, and you're waiting. Well, if you're lucky, six months. I went in to try and get a new chainsaw for the farm, and the guy said we've got fifty on orders, and and I've got no idea when the the next next shipment's coming in. It seems to be – I've never experienced supply issues or input issues like I'm experiencing now, Roundup. You know, there's issues around that. You know, is that all logistics or is it is it just demand? I, I don't know. I know. It's not all, not all logistics because mm. you just talked about the chainsaw and the Toyota. Well, the people buying those have got plenty of cash. Yep. And, and they're looking to uh, upgrade their machinery and, uh, uh, you know, whether it's a tractor, whether it's a chainsaw, whether it's a Toyota ute. So it's not just logistics, mm. but the, the demand we have for products is, is putting pressure on the logistics supply line at a time when, you know, just moving ships around the world is more complicated and more difficult. So, you know, you get a ship heading to China and, and suddenly the, the, the mill is shut down because of COVID, uh, that just backs back and they say, well, leave it, sit on the ship for another week or two. Um, the whole thing just cascades back down to that meaning that, that it's more difficult to move things around the world. There, there, is a, there is one sideline to this that's a benefit to us, and that's the grain industry. In the last few years, David, our traditional markets where we've had a competitive advantage, so up through Asia and into the Middle East, yep. because of cheap freight, 
grain has been moving all around the world with without any concerns at all. Mm. And I know, I, I remember seeing we missed out on a contract to Indonesia and the UK got it. You think, now, how <laughs> can they do that? But it was because freight was so cheap. Yep. That's turned around now. And so that's meaning that that demand, the demand from the markets where we've traditionally had an advantage, is only coming back down to us. Because it's interesting, if you go, if people remember pre-COVID, shipping costs were at an all-time, you know, next to nothing. To, to yes. move stuff around, mm. roll on two years, and we've got record container yep. costs to move stuff around around the world. Yes, well, we actually had wool being shipped back to China at virtually no cost because they just wanted to get the containers back to China. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, you know every container move is is extraordinarily valuable, and uh, and you know I, I don't profess to think I know what will happen in the future of that, but certainly right now. It's a problem if you're buying a chainsaw. It's an advantage if you're selling a ton of wheat. Yeah, yeah. So in summary, Robert, we, 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 we've probably got some very positive news on, on, the, on, on the front on commodity prices, uh, but we've got a few issues around input, both to supply and price. Yes, that's right. That's not going to correct itself anytime soon. Uh, and I think farmers will be making those, you know, doing those sums to figure out, well, how much... How much fertiliser do I put down the tube? How much nitrogen do I add in later on in the year uh, in terms of cropping? It, it, it probably is not going to impact on um, the grazing industries. I mean, if you've got, as we said, you've got cattle, you know, 50% up on this time last year, well, you, you're going to still fertilise. You're going to still try to maximise your grass production, regardless of, of how high the price of fertiliser goes. Again, you know, let's use the crossbred wool analogy, David. I've got to keep coming back to crossbred wool. Thank you. One, one cure for high prices is high prices. So yes. it's a case of hanging in there. Uh, if you can with your fertilizer price, it's a case of making sure you've done your budgets and, um, and you know what that extra kilogram of, of urea or, or, or MAP or DAP is going to do for you in terms of productivity and working your sums out there. But you're working them out from what are generally in percentile terms, high commodity prices. And that's, as we say, it's not going to change for this harvest. I think if we're taking grains, we've also got very good prices in the forward markets. We've now got clients who are locking in uh, for the next crop at prices that are well above the average. So that's a good sign there. And I think in terms of the meat price, even if we do see those lamb and, and beef prices retreat somewhat, they're going to still retreat back to what we would see as, as you know, above average, well above average, average prices. So for 2022, what's the sort of things, what are the big things that you think farmers need to keep an eye out for or look out for going forward? Well, I think we need to keep a lookout for, in the grain, we need to be watching what's happening in the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, if they, we know that they despite the fertiliser prices, we know that there will be a lot of, there's probably a lot of fertilisers still in the ground from last year. And so we know there will be a, a big planting. And, and at these prices, if you're talking, you know, look at the canola price. I mean, why wouldn't plant people plant wall-to-wall canola? So watch out for any good s- signals coming from those areas, you know, especially Canada's, Canada exports, I think 20% of the world's canola. So if they have a good season, we're going to see a lot of canola hit the markets yep. and, and that will, you know, again, the, the long-term, we need to remember this, the long-term average price for canola 
for a farmer in Australia is below five hundred dollars, just below about yep. four ninety. Now it might move above five hundred this year with these sort of prices. So it's got room to move down if supply gets back into balance, and if in fact supply oversupplies, as we know can happen with high prices, then it could move very quickly. In terms of watching out for beef, watch the northern markets here, watch the demand. I think, again, at the moment, we're seeing positive, positive. So we're seeing positive demand and we're seeing positive for the season in the north. But we need to keep an eye on that. Sheep and lamb, look, it's going to have to compete in in a market. The sheep and lamb price will be, I think, the biggest driver of that will be the, the recovery in the global economic market in the global economies. If that happens on part on, you know, as, as is predicted, then we're probably going to see another season of another year of strong sheep and lamb prices. Robert, thank you for that. And thank you for the year. I'm looking forward to hopefully catching up again with you in 2022 and wishing everyone uh, in your team a, a good, uh, good Chrissy break and uh, uh, looking forward to, as I say, catching up in the New Year's. Cheers, mate. Thanks, David, and all the best to you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of Commodity Conversations. If you're looking for more detailed information on commodity markets, you can head to the Mercado website and pick up a premium subscription, which will give you full access to all our archive of reports, as well as all the fresh analysis as it's delivered and access to our team of analysts. Thanks again, and until next week, take care.